Hallelujah. Father, we thank you that our treasure is stronger, more powerful, will outlast, will outshine anything that this life can boast or afford. We thank you that our treasure is Jesus Christ and all that his death on Calvary died to purchase. We thank you that by that price that was paid, the precious blood that was shed, that our eternal life was secured. But more than this, Lord, the eternal lives of all of the elect who will be ransomed forth from the far corners of history and the far corners of this globe to gather as a great multitude before your throne of grace and singing with the 24 elders, casting down their crowns as it were, bringing glory and praise to the Lamb of God who was slain. Lord, we recognize that our gathering here is pitifully small and just a shadow, just a little foretaste of that which we will experience in glory. Nevertheless, it is a great gift, an honor and privilege to assemble with the saints this morning in anticipation of that great day. We have everything to look forward to in Christ. And this slight momentary affliction that may plague us for a time, the frailty of these mere flesh bodies, Lord, the pain and suffering that sometimes attends our way, the trials and tribulations that you set in our path, Lord, to shape us and sanctify us, all of these are so worth the journey unto the glorification of the saints who will gather and assemble to worship your great name in heaven one day. Lord, as we study your scripture this morning and we see what follows from our justification by faith and we follow the train of promises all the way to hope of glory, I pray that you would greatly strengthen and encourage and equip and send down deep the roots of your people into streams of living water that they might burst forth with fruit under the praise of your name. They might boldly and emphatically proclaim the only source of hope and salvation. And that as you use the proclamation of your word to establish your church, you might also use it to wake the dead, to call forth the lost unto repentance and faith. They would turn from their sins and turn to Jesus Christ and his work on their behalf, his death that paid for them and his righteousness that is counted to them as their justification, his victory over the grave, and his ascension and rule over everything, and his forever intercession before the throne of grace on their behalf. Lord, awaken eyes, open ears, strengthen hearts, and equip the saints to bring glory to your great name as we seek to understand your holy word. May the Spirit use the means of grace this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, we thank the Lord and we should offer our thanksgiving and praise to Him because of the many gifts that He has granted to us, including the precious gift of His Holy Word. This morning, I beg you to turn with me, if you would, in your scriptures to Romans chapter 5, and let us consider as our primary text today, verses 1 through 5. Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. The title of this morning's message is Justification or From Justification to Hope. There is a trajectory, if you will, starting with justification by faith, following all the way through a causal chain or a chain reaction of events that closes in our text with hope. Hope that is unashamable, if you will. Hope that will not be put to shame because it has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This morning we explore the fruits of justification by faith, the fruits 
of the true gospel. That's the aim of this morning's message, to realize the fruit of justification by faith. So with your Bible open again to Romans 5, would you stand as you're able out of reverence for the reading of God's holy word and hear now in your ears the infallible, inerrant word of God. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. As an introductory note, we live in interesting times, extraordinary in some ways. And for those of you that may be listening to this in months or years to come, it is March 22nd. 2020, and it seems our whole world is gripped with the fear of a pandemic, a virus called coronavirus, can lead to a disease called COVID-19, and most churches, most people are in quarantine, and so live streams are going out all over the world as we seek to honor the Lord in gathering together via technology, given this threat. Yeah, uh, last week, I opened the message with an introductory reminder from 1 Peter 1, that the Lord will often use crises, fears like this, as His wind and breath, indeed to cause the flesh to wither. This morning, uh, I would like to preach a message, a sequel to last week, and then close with an application. And I would like you to think, as I'm proclaiming this message, of the contrast of hope. That is, hope that is based on justification by faith, its assurance its reward, its security, contrast that with everything that man cries out in our lostness and in our concern today for assurance, security, and hope. I think you'll find a dramatic difference, a dramatic distinction between the two is evident in our text today, and we'll close with that application. Now, in our text, Romans 5, 1 through 5, Paul continues to expound the significance and implications of Genesis 15, 6. So this morning is an excursus, that means a little tributary or an aside, a message that relates to our series in Genesis, but from a different passage in Scripture. Why are we in Romans 4 and 5? Well, Genesis 15, 6, uh, who, uh, young people in the room, who wrote Genesis? Who is the author of the book of Genesis? Someone shouted out. Anyone remember? Who wrote Genesis? Very good. I hear Moses. That is correct. So Moses is the author of Genesis 15. And who wrote the book of Romans, young people? Who wrote the book of Romans? Anyone shouted out? Book of Romans. Paul, that is correct. So we have two authors. Paul the Apostle wrote the epistle to the Romans. That's our main text. But Moses the prophet of old wrote the account of Abraham, or Abram, in Genesis 15. And so let's look at this verse again, Genesis 15, 6. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, Yahweh, counted it to him as righteousness. Again, 
He believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is Moses' inspired account of the significance of Abraham's faith as it relates to the absolute foundation of salvation through all of history. This is just one sentence, but it is foundational to the entire revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The by grace, through faith alone gospel. The justification by faith declaration of ultimate hope for eternal life found in Christ's work alone that Paul emphasizes and expands. And so we've turned to Romans 4 and Romans 5 to see how Paul expounds this one statement. As we do so, we realize that Revelation, like Genesis 15:6, proves absolutely foundational to the nature of salvation. All of Romans 4 and Paul's summary language in chapter 5 are centered, they're focused upon the application of this text. This uh, should come as no surprise, and it's according to a pattern we see from time to time. Every now and again in Scripture, a statement or phrase will be highlighted by the Scriptures themselves, and it proves to be a seed or source of full flowering of future or further revelation. This proves to be the case with several passages, a couple more examples, Genesis 3.15, for instance. Do you remember the prophecy to Satan, which actually holds forth hope for all mankind? There will be a seed of the woman, a son of the woman to come, whose heel will crush the serpent's head, and he will bruise his heel. This becomes the first seed of the gospel, if you will. The promise that a Messiah will come to destroy the work of Satan. And in so doing, he himself will be bruised, but not ultimately unto destruction. And so we have this fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who died, and in so doing, defeated Hell, death, Satan, the grave, our sin, its consequences. But that bruise was not unto uh, death forever, only three days, and he rose from the grave victorious. So that one seed in Genesis 3.15, that one sentence of prophecy is expounded and expanded throughout all of the revelation of salvation through history. Psalm 110 is similar and does uh, this kind of thing. As David writes of his Lord, saying to his Lord certain things, and we find proto-revelation of the Trinity, as well as the office of our Messiah in Psalm 110. Just to point your uh, attention to how the Scripture will sometimes take a seed, and then uh, as it is expounded through the course of Scripture, it bursts forth into full-flowering plant. That analogy is apt because if you look at a seed in your hand, kids, have you ever seen like a tiny uh, carrot seed? It's so small, it's like almost like the head of a pin, right? And if you just saw that seed and you didn't know what kind of plant, like let's say there's no picture on the package, it'd be hard to tell what is inside. But what happens? You plant that seed in the ground, then you water it, and after a while, what grows? A carrot, that's correct. And so the seed, in many ways, looks nothing like the carrot. However, that seed was responsible for the full flowering of the vegetable. In a similar way, there's seed that's shadowy and difficult to discern at first glance, perhaps, in Old Testament scriptures. But the full flowering in passages like Romans 4 and 5 give us the record of the potential and what is buried, packed into what God has revealed in the past. So in chapter 5, turning to our text now, Paul opens his remarks in this chapter by answering the question, what follows from justification? What follows from justification? That is to say, what are the consequences the results or effects of justification by faith. 
this theme is signaled by the transitional phrase, right, in 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and then everything that follows is an effect, result, consequence. It is what justification by faith accomplishes by way of fruit in the life, the heart, the experience of the believer. As a result of justification by faith, our great salvation, or justification by faith, the result of our great salvation in Christ, the following is true, verses 1 through 5. Record these effects. And this is something like a causal chain. And there's kind of a cumulative or growing or ascending quality to it. What is a causal chain? Where a causal chain is a series of conditions or events, let's say, stemming from a primary cause. So kids, have you ever lined up a row of dominoes? You guys ever done that? Let's say you have a bunch of dominoes. They're spaced just a little bit apart, less than a domino apart, and you get kind of a long, long chain. Has anyone done this? Yeah, very good. So what happens if you touch the first domino if you push it over? That's right. The second one falls, third one, and so forth. That is an illustration of a causal chain. The primary cause is your finger, kids, and you touch that first domino and all the rest follow. That's a series uh, that can be traced back to its primary cause. Here's another analogy. If you get in your car and turn the key, I recently bought a, a car and I didn't have the correct uh, key. There's the key fob type, which enables all the parts that are necessary to initiate the engine. So just grind and grind and grind. But when I got the correct key, that primary cause in my hand turned the key. It sent a signal to the starter, to the fuel injectors. I'm a real motorhead, so that's all I can give you, tongue in cheek. And everything, you know, and gas goes into the chamber and whatnot. I think you call it pistons, right? And it fires. And then everything that is associated with the engine running can be traced back to that primary cause. So you turn the key in your car. It engages the starter via electrical signal. Gas is sent into the pistons. Ignition is actuated. The functions of internal combustion are all engaged. So think of that analogy with respect to justification by faith. When God justifies us in His sovereignty, He uses the key, the instrument of faith. And when that faith turns, if you will, the believer's engine roars to life with all the potential that is expounded in our text today. Everything from justification builds towards this unashamed hope that we see at the climax in verse 5. That's an introduction for the overall scope and theme of these five verses. Now, just a note, as we go through these verses more closely, we'll reference chapter 4 with each one or with each phrase. In other words, with each effect of justification, there is in this summary passage, 5, 1 through 5, there's a reference to prior commentary in chapter 4. So by the time we've gone through this, we'll have covered 4, I believe 13 through 25, and also 5, 1 through 5. Let me give you a heading. If you have notes today, if you're jotting something down, you could write this at the top of the page. Since we have been justified by faith, we, then the following are true. Since we have been justified by faith, we, number one, have peace with God. Number two, we have obtained grace. Number three, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And number four, we rejoice in our sufferings. So again, the key is turned, justification by faith. The engine roars to life. And what is functional now as the believer's life begins to show the fruit of justification by faith? Well, we have peace with God. We have obtained grace. 
We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and we rejoice in our sufferings, and there's even more under each one of those. So that is the engine of the believer's faith humming along. All these things begin to be evident. Notice points one and two, the key word is have. We have peace with God, we have obtained grace. This speaks to what is granted to us since we have been justified. So since we have been justified by faith, we have granted to us by God peace and grace. Okay, And then points three and four hinge on the term rejoice. Since we have been justified by faith, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God and rejoice in our sufferings. So these speak, this speaks to things that are evident through us. So again, the consequences. What follows from justification by faith? We have things that are granted to us by God. We have things that are evident through us as we begin to live out the fruit of the Christian life. Let's turn to Romans 5.1. Again, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God as a result, as a consequence. Peace with God follows from our justification. This is a powerful statement. Peace with God is, something, is nothing trivial. It comes at the cost of satisfying the demands of the covenant. It is a reconciliation that is absolutely inconceivable by man's efforts. I wonder if we lose sometimes, after being saved for a while, we lose the perspective or the significance of how big of a gap our sin creates between a wicked rebel, such as we were before Christ, and the holiness of God. If you have lost some of that perspective, turn to the sufficient source to regain your focus. Turn to the Scriptures. Turn to the giving of the law, for instance, where the whole earth literally shook with the revelation of God's righteous and holy demands. And note the reaction of those who weren't assured of their salvation as they saw the Lord appear in storm, in cloud, in smoke, in fire, in delivering the law, the standard by which every single congregant around Mount Sinai was falling, had fallen short. When God delivered that, notice the fear, the quaking, the distance, the terror in the hearts and in the eyes and the distance. They ran away from God, rather to Him, for fear of themselves. This is more towards the beginning of Revelation back in Exodus. But if you want another reference, go to Revelation. And notice when God shows up again in terrifying judgment at his days of reckoning, most ultimately at the end of days, when history will be wrapped up according to his decree, the fullness of the elect have come in, and those who are yet rebels pray and plead for the rocks to fall on them. And they hide in caves, and they run around delusional and are freaking out. Think of those reactions and then consider the value, the relief, and the glory, and the promise, and the precious hope of peace with God, to be in right standing with Him, to be found in His favor, <clears throat> to be in right relationship, in communion with Him, and so forth. Uh, as we consider this, we're mindful uh, we should be mindful also that there are important moments in biblical history. So imagine a bookmark in significant points. Uh, the young people, uh, the kids will be studying very shortly, will initiate in several weeks, Lord willing, a study of the big picture of the story of redemption in the Bible. 
And as we follow the record of, say, Abraham's life, like we're doing in our sermon series here, or Adam and Eve in the garden, what their study seeks to point out is significant watershed moments in the history of man with respect to his relationship with God. And this uh, promise, or this fruit of justification, having peace with God, references all the way back to a significant point in the book of Genesis. And that would be Genesis 3.24, where Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. And kids, do you remember uh, what was placed at the gate of the garden so Adam and Eve could not go back in? Does anyone remember? That's correct. Thanks, Theo. An angel with a flaming sword guarded entrance into the Garden of Eden. And what is the Garden of Eden? Well, in seed form, we learn a little bit of it from Genesis. But as a full flowering of the picture of Eden, what it symbolizes is available to us through Scripture. We conclude that Eden is the sanctuary presence of God. It's the dwelling place of a holy God with man in good standing with him. And the point of Genesis 3.24 is that will no longer happen unless and until we can have peace with God. Unless and until there is reconciliation. How can we pass through that sword and re-enter the Garden of Eden? Is it by works? Is it by a mere human hero? Is it by a philosophy? By a religion invented by man? Is it by a creative um, you know, acquisition of knowledge and implementation of strategy? None of these things. In order to have peace with God, it comes as a consequence of one thing alone, and that is justification by faith. Justification means being made right, being declared righteous, being placed in right standing with the Lord, being deemed and declared holy. When we are justified, it is the righteousness of Christ which God imputes to us, which is granted to us and counted as our own righteousness. This is part of what we call in theology the great exchange. Our sins are taken on Christ, and He is killed for them. And His righteousness is granted to us, and we are considered righteous as He was, according to His perfect law-keeping. All this is absolutely necessary in order for us to be at peace with God. Note chapter 4, verse 15. Reaching back in Romans a little ways, we find this message. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law... There is no transgression. So the law, what is the law? The law is the declaration of the Lord, uh, of the Lord's righteous character. It is the immutable, holy standard of what is required in order, in order to be holy, to be just, to be perfect. All of God's perfections are manifest in His law. And why does the law bring wrath? Because as soon as the standard is invoked, we find ourselves falling short, as Paul has also said. All have fallen short of the glory of the Lord, correct? So as the law judges us falling short, then the punishment of the law for breaking uh, the covenant is upon us. And this is what we were before God saved us. Suffice it to say, in order to have peace, or the implication of peace with God means that we were once at war with Him. We were once at war. We fell short of His glory. We were objects of His wrath. We were outside of the Garden of Eden. We were exiled and alienated from communion with Him and his, in His presence. But since we have been justified by faith, that key turning in the engine of the believer, if you will, since we have been justified by faith, that primary cause, hence we have peace with God. Those who were once at war, objects of His wrath, the law condemning us 
After all, the standard of righteousness is issued, and by those edicts, uh, transgressions are defined. In other words, where there is a standard, there is a way to, or there is a means whereby falling short is judged. That's what Paul in, indicates here when he says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. And the converse is, is implied. Where there is law, there is transgression. There is law because God is holy and has revealed His holiness in His law. Therefore, there is sin. There is transgression. There is breaking His law. That means we are at war with Him. We are rebels. We are outside of His favor. However, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with Him. How is this possible? Well, we mentioned that this is activated in the heart of a believer by the instrument of justification, namely faith, that sovereign gift that God grants us. But there is other prerequisite activity before this can happen, and Romans 4, 23 through 25 speaks to this. Notice, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, our uh, righteousness will be counted to us, or our faith will be counted to us as righteousness so long as we have faith in the one who satisfied the terms of covenant. Covenantal satisfaction was achieved by Jesus Christ on Calvary. He was raised from the dead for our justification. He was crucified for our trespasses. Uh, he was raised from the dead, or it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up, that means killed or brought to Cal unto Calvary as it were, for our trespasses. So verse 25 is the summary verse there. He's delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Recently I saw, I wonder how you would discern this statement. Recently I saw a little meme. You have to be careful with memes, especially ones that seek to communicate theology. The scriptures are way better than memes, and the scriptures judge memes as, uh, you know, being useful or helpful or not. So a wolf in sheep's clothing, as I judge it by this uh, quote, issued this meme. He said, God loves you more than he loves his Ten Commandments. Think about that for a moment. God loves you more than he loves his commandments. <clears throat> that is a poisonous meme. Poisonous, I tell you. Why is it poisonous? It's, well, it is fraught with category error, conflation, and confusion. And this is why. Because God's commandments reveal His holiness. And because we fall short of them, we are objects of His wrath. That meme implies, just on the face of it, that there's something lovable about you even more so than God's righteous dictates. No. God's righteous dictates deem you, before you were saved, an object of His wrath. It is the law that defines transgression and shows that we are sinners, wicked, and deserving of His wrath and judgment. And the Scriptures say that God hates rebels. Now, after we are in Christ, yes, God loves us, but he doesn't love us more than a lot. That's just an error. It's a mistake. It is Jesus Christ who kept the law, and that righteous law-keeping is accredited to us, and by that standard, we are justified, we are deemed righteous, and so forth. In other words, there is not a conflict between law and grace. 
The law is kept by the Lord, and we receive grace because of His perfections. You see? So this is one example of how the message of Paul is relevant to our day. Use these scriptures to judge these clever memes and statements that people make, pitting the law against uh, grace and so forth. Understand how they are reconciled in Jesus Christ, the perfect lawkeeper who died in our place, who was the substitute sacrifice. By his lawkeeping was the perfect lamb, and when he died, his righteousness was imputed to us, and by that standard we were delivered from our trespasses. By that means we were delivered from our trespasses, and by the power that raised him from the dead, so we were raised from the dead, and our justification is assured. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Second major point this morning. Since we have been justified by faith, we have obtained grace. uh, 5.2. Through Him, that is Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. That's the first portion of the verse again. Through Him, through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Since justification, since we have been justified by faith, the turning of the key, the engine roars to life, and we have now access by faith into grace in which we stand. This uh, stand language is foundational language. Now, this should be contrasted with 4.13 through 14, the uh, hopelessness of obtaining salvation by law-keeping. Notice 4.13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. We continue to read verses 16 and 17. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. He, a phrase there, the promise rests on grace. And be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So what is Paul getting at here? He says that since we have been justified by faith, uh, we we have obtained grace in which we stand, grace that would otherwise be unattainable. The grace by which we stand is unattainable by our law-keeping. We are born in rebellion to the Lord and fail from the womb. There is no way. This grace is unattainable because we cannot keep the law, and that's what Paul says. But for all of us Gentiles in the room, and I think that's everyone, virtually everyone in the hearing of this message, grace would also be attainable because of our lack of privileged birth. That is to say, if salvation was attainable through the literal seed of Abraham then those who are outside the boundaries of ethnic Israel could no longer share in the promises. In other words, if 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 the terms of covenant were those who were literally born of Abraham's seed, what of all who are outside? Well, praise the Lord that the Scriptures reveal to us that because we are justified not by being born literally of Abraham's seed, and we are justified not by law keeping, but since we are justified by faith, We have this promise resting on grace, guaranteed to all his offspring, Abraham, to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, he becomes the father of them all. Not to the inherent of the law, not to the one who is born of privileged stock, 
but the one who shares the faith of Abraham. This grace that we have obtained rests upon the foundation of grace. Since we have been justified by faith, this is true. We are not justified by Abraham's literal lineage. We are not justified by law-keeping. We are justified by grace, keeping of the law of Christ again in His perfect life, His death on Calvary, and all that that secured for us, granting to us as a free gift His grace that justifies, that saves us. This promise rests on grace. Think of an analogy. A train car has wheels fitted for a a track, correct? So think of grace as a train car, or think of salvation as a train car, and think of the tracks as grace. The the grace, the foundation upon which, uh, or the, the promises rest, allows salvation to travel to the heart of the believer. But other means is like trying to push a train car straight through the woods. It does not rest upon anything else. And so assuming that there's salvation by any other other ultimate means, it's to remove the instrument from the foundation, or it's to remove the promise from the foundation, and therefore will not be affected. Now, having obtained, or since we have been justified by faith, we have obtained grace, and this is also the means whereby those of other nations will be called in. Since the message goes forth that Abraham's seed is a spiritual one and that the light of the gospel will go forth to all nations, this truth that salvation, or that since we have been justified by faith, we have obtained grace allows Genesis 12 to be fulfilled. It's the means whereby the nations are called. Remember Genesis 12, 3? I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is true because the gospel goes forth even today to all nations of the earth and says, regardless of creed or heritage, of culture, of background, of birth, and so forth, salvation is by grace alone. Trust and believe Jesus Christ, who was offered up for your transgressions and who was raised for your justification. Repent of your sin, trust in Him, and believe. Paul quotes directly from Genesis 17 as well in this passage. Again, he's referencing the legacy of Abraham. He quotes Genesis 17, 5. This is in the naming, the renaming of Abraham from Abram to what? Abraham's name is changed, kids, from Abram to what? What is his new name that God gives him? He He used to be Abram, but after God changes his name, he is... Abraham, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant. How can those kings, and other nations be included in that covenant? Well, they are included because the covenant ultimately is not marked by outward sign, but by inward heart condition. Because of justification by faith, we have obtained grace, grace that is granted to us by the sovereign work of Jesus Christ. It is the means whereby the nations are being called in, and there's also a symbolic element to Isaac uh, in Isaac's birth that relates to this truth as well. Uh, Notice 
back in Romans 4, 17. As it is written, this is that citation of the verse we just read, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. God calls into existence things that do not exist, and He brings life, He gives life to the dead. How old, kids, about how old were Abraham and Isaac when they finally had a baby? Does anyone remember? How old were they? Approximately. I'll give you a hint, century. (laughs) Right around 100 years old. It says in our text today, actually, Notice in verse 19, he did not weaken, speaking of Abraham, in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. In other words, the fact that God waited for Abraham to be like 100 years old and for, and for him to be good as dead as far as hope of having a child biologically was concerned, and the fact that God waited until uh, Sarah was far past the time of fruitful childbearing, until she was, you know, nearly as old. God did that on purpose to show that He is the one who can call things out of existence that were not and cause them by His Word to be, and also to raise the dead and bring forth from death life. And so this is a picture of what God has done for us. Though we weren't born of the physical lineage of Abraham, God has grafted us in, adopted us as sons, if you're a believer in this room, And you now share in the covenant of Abraham because you have obtained it by grace. And in a similar way, Isaac, uh, God calls forth the the dead unto life, and he calls forth the things that are not as, uh, or just like he called forth that which was non existent to exist, like he did when he spoke and the world was created. God calls forth the dead unto newness of life. And so Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins but we were spiritually resurrected when we obtained the grace of the gospel. So since we have been justified by faith, it has been granted unto us two things, peace with God and the obtaining of grace. This brings us to our final section and final two points. We rejoice. There is evidence through us that happens as a consequence of justification by faith. That is to say, since we have been justified by faith, We rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and we rejoice in our sufferings. Notice verse 2, the second half in Romans 5. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, Abraham rejoiced in hope of the glory of God, and we read this in the prior prior chapter as well. Notice chapter 4, 20 through 22. No distrust made him, Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Hope is justified by its object, just as faith is justified by its object as well. In other words, is all faith legitimate? We've said this before. These days, the world judges faith by sincerity, and sometimes we're guilty of the same. We say, oh, you know, I don't believe what the Jehovah's Witnesses do, but boy, they sure are sincere. I admire their 
commitment. You know, they knock on doors all over the place, and they're really uh, sold out to their cause. And so the faith that they have or the hope that they represent, we think is laudable in some way because of their sincerity. The Word of God disagrees with this. The Word of God says instead that hope or faith is justified by its object. What makes a difference is what you have hope in, what you have faith in. Faith is never noble if it's faith in yourself. Faith is never noble if it's faith in a false idea, a false philosophy, a false God, a false hope, false promise, false covenant. Hope is never noble. It's always foolish if it's placed uh, in something lesser than the Lord's Word, His promises, and things that are assured according to His, uh, His declared truth in His Scriptures, that which accords with salvation. Hope is not justified by sincerity. It's not justified by scientific calculation, popular these days as well. Uh, hope is not justified by uh, empirical observation. Ours is a hope leading to joy because it is fixed on the glory of God. In other words, since we have been justified by faith, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There is an interminable joy. There is a joy that cannot be stolen from us, even in the darkest hours of persecution. Why? Because it is a hope that is fixed on something that transcends, that surpasses death. We have a hope in something that defeated death. We have a hope in a God who called a hundred-year-old womb, almost, to, uh, be, to conceive a son, Sarah, in her old age. We have a hope in a God who called forth from the grave his son who had been dead for three days. We have a hope of a God who calls forth Lazarus as a picture of the raising from the dead on the final day of all who are in Christ. And therefore... We have a hope that cannot be pried from our grasp no matter how difficult, trying, how much affliction, how much discouragement the world uh, flings our way this side of glory. This is a hope that is fixed on the glory of God. Now, now you might say, well, I wrestle with depression, despair, discouragement, and so forth. And yes, believers do wrestle with those kinds of things. But what is the ultimate cure? It's to place your hope on the one who transcends this life. So place your hope to set your hope not on whatever short-sighted view you may have that leads to depression, like, I wish things were different. My expectations in this situation are continually discouraged or thwarted, and my uh, imagination, what I, got, what, what I wanted God to, how I wanted God to answer my prayer has continually not happened. Well, if we place our hope in those kinds of things, it's a presumptuous hope. But if we place our hope on the one who raises the dead, and trust that He has a purpose in our afflictions, as Paul goes on to say, that our hope is justified by the object, and it is a hope leading to joy, a joy that cannot be stolen. Now, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God in two senses. Mark this down. So far, I've given you the sense of uh, the hope in the glory of God as far as the credit or the amazing things that God can do. But Paul speaks of glorification in another way, which is that which we have to look forward to in the future. In other words, we will be resurrected unto newness of life. We will be given citizenship in the new heavens and new earth. We will have perfect reconciliation, perfect healing, and hope in the next life. We will have heaven eternal with every tear gone, every pain a distant memory, and every reason 
to cry out in anguish, utterly removed from our experience. So this is the kind of hope that we have. Hope in our eternal future and eternal life, and hope in the glory of God, His amazing power to save us, and the glories that He exhibits in the truth of His holy word, and what, how He's moved heaven and earth and the record of His works through history, so on and so forth. Now, as we place our attention, fix our hope on the glory of God, our faith will be built, will it not? Verse 20, he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Let me begin to shift to application for our time right now. Consider, as I opened with, you know, introducing this message, our current crisis, the threat of a global pandemic that could cause mortal disease, you know, terminable, terminal, uh, whatever, cough that could lead to death. Consider our current crisis. Now, when we recognize that God is glorified in actions such as this, our faith is actually strengthened. In other words, though, we can, uh, though our uh, healthcare systems may be prove uh, ridiculous and, in, and we cry out for tests and so forth and we suffer incredible economic loss, we're devastated in the short term by health fears and economic loss. Nevertheless, our faith can be strengthened when we look to a God that can tear down global idolatry in just one day's news cycle. In other words, like we pointed out last week, is God ever glorified in pestilence, in plague, in famine, in hardship, in difficulty? You better believe it. His very wind blew across the country of Egypt in ancient times. And what did it bring? Destruction. And what, was it, I, what did uh, God call or what did Moses identify these works as? His wonders. And so plagues of locusts would eat all the crops. Boils would break out on the people. Darkness for an entire day. Cro uh, livestock slaughtered in a single hailstorm. And the seas drowning those who trusted in chariots and horses. All the armies of this great empire. But all of that was a demonstration though a difficult time to be sure, all of that was a demonstration of the glory of our Lord. As our Lord glorified, even in the threat against the idols of our day and age, absolutely. This day and age, we put our faith and hope, if we are not carefully holding our affections accountable to the Word of God and things that in order for God to be glorified, He must judge. And so as He tears them down and as we look to His glory and see that there are purpose in times like these, that we cry out for comfort, that we cry out for healing, that we cry out for protection, nevertheless, our faith can grow stronger as we recognize that He has purpose in times of judgment, just as He has purpose in times of salvation. And we know no matter what happens to our body as believers, we will escape final judgment. So we can die rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, can we not? Final point. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, we have obtained grace, rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and finally, we rejoice in our sufferings. 5.3. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. And notice this causal chain, right? Just like the dominoes. First of all, first domino suffering, okay? More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Second in line, endurance. And endurance produces character. That's the third in line. And character produces hope. And notice the nature of this hope expounded in verse 5. 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, if you line all this, th- all this up, you see what follows from justification, right? Since we, have been justified by fa- uh, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And this peace with God repre- or, uh, is associated with an obtaining of His grace. And it leads to a rejoicing and hope of the glory of God. And even a rejoicing in our sufferings. Because we know by God's word that these sufferings are purposeful. They produce in us endurance. Endurance produces subsequent character. Character goes on to establish hope. And this hope is a a shame-protected hope. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Notice Abraham's sufferings in verses 18 and 19. You remember them. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was good as, de- as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Abraham's sufferings in part were a long, long wait for the promises of God. Remember, he cries out in perceptible anguish, in Genesis 15, he says, I have no son, and Eliezer of Damascus stands to inherit my wealth. And the Lord says, no, you will have a son from your very own body. Like this, this son, and Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. Nevertheless, there was suffering in between when the promise, the word of promise was issued, and the promise was fully manifest and obtained. Can we relate to this? Yes. For sure, we have the promise of salvation and all it secures, ultimate reconciliation with the Lord, that is the hope of communion restored with Him with no more pain, affliction, sorrow, or the sin to play, or our sinful flesh to plague us in any way anymore in glory. But there is suffering in between, but there is purpose for this. Now, our world today, the Christian worldview declares that there is purpose in suffering. Today, people have a hard time believing this. The pagan's goal in life seems to more often be to minimize suffering at all costs, to try to secure a pain-free existence, to create, if you will, heaven on earth. Why? Because they don't believe in heaven eternal. Their hope is fixed in this life. So the best that they can do is buy for themselves peace of mind through insurance plans and large-scale government programs and so forth. The best that they can do is acquire for themselves through wealth and so forth, comfortable life of ease and luxury. And in this way, hopefully, try to minimize suffering as much as possible. Isn't that the goal of life, our culture tells us? No, it's not. There's purpose in suffering. One of the number one objections an apologist must face in our day and age is the question of theodicy, the justification of God, if you will, in light of suffering and light of sorrows and even evil. I remember watching a movie, uh, something having to do with Batman, I get them mixed up. But the, the uh, nemesis, the bad guy character, he uh, determines, he, there's a point in the movie where he determines, I, I have determined there is no God. Or if there is a God, he, he can't be both, he is either not powerful or he is not good. Why? This is the way he reasoned. Because a powerful God would not allow all this suffering and all this evil. He himself had grown up in a traumatic experience. Or, uh, and a good, or he is powerful, and he's not good because he allows all this suffering. Well, that's the, main, that's the way man reasons. From his pitiful, small-minded, corrupt way of thinking 
on this earth. What that confession, with that syllogism, that logic fails to realize is that God has purposes in suffering. What, does, what do our scriptures teach? That God, in his sovereignty, gathered together for himself Pilate, Herod, and all the people that condemned Jesus to death. One of the most horrific sins, and we see this record in Acts chapter 4. But by this very act, though the Son of God was crucified at the hands of sinful men, what was secured for us? Eternal hope. Our sins were paid for by that sinful act. And this is the glory of our God pictured in his purposes in sin, in sorrow, in suffering. Sufferings have purpose. Afflictions have a point. They produce endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And this is not a misguided hope such as we find in our lives today that people are so tempted to resort to. Even in our day, think of this pandemic scare. What are the sources of hope that people turn to? These are a few examples. Science. Uh, let all the scientists get together. Give them as much money as possible. Let us come up with a cure. In this day and age, with our advanced technology, isn't it ridiculous that we haven't solved this problem yet? Come on. Hope in science. Health. Our hospital beds. We need to uh, get as many ventilators as possible. We need to quick deploy the army to create as much shelter as possible. We're scrambling to catch up with the need, and so our healthcare systems represent our ultimate source of hope. Technology. Oh, maybe we can develop an app and measure everybody's track, you know, progress, and if they're tested positive for the disease, we can see where they've gone, and nations have implemented this, and then we can be careful to avoid everywhere they went and wait it out, and maybe we can escape. Maybe technology will allow us to escape this. Medicine. Why have they developed a vaccine? Come on, let's pour all our efforts, our collective intelligence, and all the money we can muster to come up with the vaccine in order for us to be shielded against this great crisis. Economy. Oh no, everything's shot. Uh, uh, everything's the, the economic engines are ground to a halt. Everybody needs to shelter in place. And what if I can't go to my job? Well, I cry out to our next source of hope the government. Oh, government, uh, suspend my mortgage. Give me a payment. Give me a bailout. Give me a buyout. A $1 trillion stimulus package. Coronavirus relief is being considered in bo between both parties right now and likely result in maybe checks in your own mailbox. This is hope arriving via the government in the form of a check in your mailbox. Wall Street. Oh, no. The stock market has crashed 1,000 points. My whole retirement is going up in flames. Oh, praise, uh, praise Wall Street. It's uh, jumped up on 1,000 points again. It's regained some of its footing. Experts, so we turn in, tune into the media and we see uh, people giving us uh, signs of hope or giving us signs of doom and our joy or our fear rides on all of these. Well, I'm here to tell you that all of these things that I've given by way of example are shameful sources of hope. When the reckoning comes, and there is something of a partial reckoning right now, the Lord is showing us that in spite of all our technology, economy, medicine, health, science, government, Wall Street experts, that we still cannot ensure our eternal future. The Lord is showing us that. And so a reckoning has come. And with this reckoning, it becomes painfully obvious that we have hoped in all of these things to our shame. And this is what Paul means. There are hopes that when the day of reckoning comes, you are proven the fool. And then there is the hope when the day of reckoning comes is unassailable. The ultimate day of reckoning is the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The ultimate day of reckoning is when he sits upon his throne. It's the end of history. 
and everyone who's ever been born lines up, two, two lines, the sheep and the goats. And maybe you died of the coronavirus, but you died a believer. On that final day of reckoning, you will have proved that you had a hope that was absolutely substantial. Substantial. You will not be put to shame because this hope is based on God's love that has been poured into your hearts by His Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who has been given to you by union with Christ, by the indwelling of God Himself. And so whatever may fall by way of suffering, if we focus on these truths, it can instead of producing despair and fear and anxiety and panic, can instead produce endurance and character and hope, and the kind of hope that does not disappoint, the kind of hope that does not put us to shame, but the kind of hope that will ultimately be proven substantial on that final day. This is the result of justification by faith. We have peace with God. We have obtained it by grace. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and we rejoice even in our sufferings. We have things that have been granted to us by a sovereign God, and then we have fruit that is evident through us when we walk in light of those truths. So be encouraged, saint, even in days such as this. The gospel is your source of hope, is it not? It's the only one that will never, never fail you, while all others will wither, fail, and fade when the breath of God withers all flesh, destroys all flesh. But secondly, last point of application, take this message to your neighbors, to your friends, to your family, as you have opportunity to take this message to those who place their hope in anything that I mentioned, anything lesser than the gospel, because there is no security, no assurance there. Turn to Jesus Christ. He alone can save us from every enemy, including the last enemy, death itself. Praise His holy name. Let us close in prayer. Lord, we thank You for hope and assurance that we find in the gospel. We thank you that this hope does not disappoint, it does not put us to shame, but instead will be proven substantial because it is a hope in the object, Jesus Christ, and his saving work. We thank you that when all else is gone, you and your plan remains. And that which you died to purchase, purify, and to glorify will thrive in the new heavens and new earth. For every believer in this room, we have such hope, such glory in the eternal promises of salvation that it stirs us to cry out, thank you, and praise your name, and glory to God for what he has done for us. But for those who are lost, the day of reckoning comes, Lord, the opposite is true. So in this time of partial accounting, during this time of disciplinary judgment, I pray that you would use the fear of this virus as a wake-up call, to call the lost to place hope in that which will outlast the grave. I pray that they would turn to the champion and hero, Jesus Christ, who defeated the grave on Calvary, who defeated death in his saving act and rose again and ascended and is now ruling and reigning, placing all other enemies under his feet as well. Would you subdue us, Lord, through the gospel? And would you subdue more of your people and the elect through the proclamation of the same, that you might be glorified even now in times of trouble, as you are in future days of glory, when all the elect will worship you perfectly, forever, without end. Thank you for these promises. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.